Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called My Bad Dream, The Wise and Foolish Virgins of Matthew chapter 25. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 12, 2017. This is a guest essay by Liz Milner who serves as a staff chaplain with CIC Ministries in the Santa Clara County Jails, which in fact has one of the biggest jail systems in America, with about 4,000 men, women, and children who are incarcerated. There are some parts of the Bible that remind me of my nightmares. The story of the ten bridesmaids in this week's Gospel is one such passage. It calls to mind a recurring dream that haunted me through my young childhood and adulthood. I dreamed that I was walking into a great hall to take my final exams. As I walked to my desk, seeing the question paper lying, waiting for me, I suddenly realized this was a language exam. A language that somehow I had managed to avoid learning all year because I had not turned up to class a language that I was about to be rigorously tested on, and that was nonsense to me because of my poor attendance and preparation. I'd blithely gone about my year ignoring my responsibilities and duties, and now I would pay. A sense of doom and panic settled on me as I walked towards the desk. I was not ready. The end was nigh. The parable of the ten bridesmaids evokes feelings of shame and fear in me, much as my dream did. I fear being one of the five foolish virgins who didn't think ahead to bring extra oil, left the vigil to search for the required substance, and came back to rejection in a bridegroom who claimed to, quote, have never known them. What's more, I imagine the smug grins of the five wise virgins raising their glasses and winking to their foolish compatriots from the warmth and jollity of the ballroom. What was Jesus thinking? Whenever I'm troubled by Jesus' teachings, I remember my seminary professor beating the drum of context. Take a step back, Liz, he said. Survey the landscape before you zero in on this particularly troubling aspect. So let's survey the context for a moment. The chapter before this parable sees the disciples asking Jesus to help them understand how they can discern the signs of the end of the age. Jesus launches into a terrifying description of the travails that will accompany the last times. Then he tells the bridesmaid story for this week, followed by the parable of the talents, yet another troubling story that seems to suggest to us not to play it safe with the assets that God gives us, but to risk using them, even if that means we may potentially lose them. Finally, Matthew chapter 25 closes with the parable of the sheep and the goats, another story that haunted me as a young Christian. God divides people into two groups, sheep that end up fine and goats that don't. What decides your fate? In a statement that forms the foundation of ministry for many chaplains like myself, it seems as if Jesus indicates that those who serve the least of these, 
the sick, the aliens, the hungry, the naked, and the imprisoned. It is they who will be saved, and indeed their service actually minister to Jesus himself. Tarry a moment with this wide view of Jesus' teaching. Let your eyes roam over it and take in the grand view of where he's heading. Let his words flow over you and massage your heart before we engage the bridesmaids again. As I contemplate this context within which the bridesmaid's tale is told, I hear Jesus responding to anxious disciples who are eager to understand when the end times will descend. He lets them know that there will be signs, terrible signs, that will give people clues that the end is coming encouraging them not to listen to idle rumors, but to trust his words. The parables of the talents and the bridesmaids compare the listeners to servants entrusted with a role, while their master is gone. A contrast is made in each between those who perform well and those who do not. In the case of the talents, it's the servant who, fearing the master's harsh treatment, buries his talents rather than risking investment, who is punished. The servant in that parable, who was cast into outer darkness, was treated that way because he acted out of fear and hid the master's gold in the ground. The parable of the sheep and the goats suggests that the presence of Jesus is found in those who have in some way found themselves at the bottom of the human heap whether due to misfortune, like the starving and naked, or due to their own actions, like the imprisoned. It's those people who failed to care for the immediate needs of the oppressed and the criminal who are cast into eternal punishment. With these teachings of Jesus ringing in our ears, how then can we approach the parable of the ten bridesmaids? First, let us note that had the bridegroom not been delayed, none of this would have mattered. The ten maids would all have made it into the party with lamps lit, ready to dance the night away. Therefore, it seems that the risk arises in our response to a delay. If we accept the traditional interpretation that the bridegroom's arrival represents the return of Jesus, what risk do we face during the decades, the centuries, even the millennia, where God seems to tarry? For myself, as I work with inmates in the county jail, hearing stories of injustice, broken lives, addiction, heartache, and violence every day, I'm tempted to give up on faith. Where is God? Why is he leaving us so long in this dark night where the oil seems to be burning low? Might we be tempted to react with fear that our oil might run out before he gets here and run into town to purchase more, leave our posts fleeing the darkness, and rush to another source to keep our light glowing just a little bit longer? The final line of the parable admonishes us to, quote-unquote, stay awake, suggesting that the five foolish virgins were in some way asleep. 
This could be misleading, though, as we read in the story that all ten maids slept. The sleeping was not the problem, but rather the fact that the five of them left the room to replenish supplies. The Greek words used for stay awake can also be interpreted to mean stay alert, engage, for there is a task to do. In what way did the five foolish maids lose focus and fail to be alert to the situation? It's here that the context of Jesus' other teachings might come to our aid. Could it be that it is the maid's fear of the bridegroom's reaction to them that causes them to flee to the town? Could it be that waiting in the darkness, even if their lights had gone out, would have been a more faithful way to stay engaged with the role assigned to them by their master? If Jesus is to be found amongst the naked, hungry, thirsty, and criminal, could it be that he would respond with compassion to the five maids who might come trembling before him, confessing they had run out of oil? We will never know, since those five fled, rather than risk waiting on the groom. However, my experience of Jesus, and my wrestling to understand this story in the context of his other teachings and ministry, invites me to wonder if it might be better to stay in the darkness rather than flee the scene from fear of, having, of being found wanting. I take comfort in the Jewish rabbinical tradition that the scripture, and indeed God himself, is to be wrestled with and argued over. Since Jacob wrestled the man, commonly thought to be God himself, shouting, I will not let you go unless you bless me, the Jewish people have encouraged an approach to faith that actively and proactively engages God in his words to us. In contrast, my experience of much of modern Christianity's approach to scripture and faith is a more passive acceptance of the first reading of a text and a distinct lack of robust wrestling. It seems that fear of being wrong sends many of us running to make sure we have enough oil rather than sitting in uncomfortable darkness with a text for too long. Indeed, Jesus seems to encourage this intentional, proactive, even outrageous kind of interaction with himself when he responds to those such as the Syrophoenician woman with compassion and praise. When confronted with passages such as the Ten Bridesmaids, it may do us well to wrestle with Jesus, refusing to let the interaction go until we receive a blessing. Maybe the foolishness Jesus is rebuking in this parable is the fear that caused the women to flee, rather than remaining in the darkness and throwing themselves on the mercy of the coming groom. It's hard to wait with faith in darkness, knowing our own resources have run out. As I return to the nightmare dream that haunted me for so long, I wonder how it might have ended had I walked up to the teacher, trembling, to confess my failure to prepare for her exam. I assumed, given my own experience with education, a brisk dismissal and a failing grade. But maybe Jesus is rewriting my assumptions about authority failure in my own response to my inadequate preparation for life. Yes, 
it's a true blessing to receive. <clears throat> a guest essay by Liz Milner. For books this week, I review a novel by Peter S. Beagle. It's called In Calabria, a novel, San Francisco, Tachyon, 2017. This novel is 174 pages long. Peter S. Beagle, born in 1939, has written three dozen works of fiction, nonfiction, and autobiography. In this new fantasy novella, he returns to the mythic creature that made him famous way back in 1968 with the publication of his book called The Last Unicorn. By the way, five million copies sold. That best-selling novel was made into a movie, put Beagle on the short lists of best fantasy writers, and kick-started a 50-year career in which he has earned numerous literary awards. In this, his newest novel, Claudio Bianchi is a cantankerous man who works a rundown farm on a forsaken hillside in the toe of the Italian boot, thus the title of the book, Calabria. He has a reputation among the villagers as a bad-tempered hermit. He lives alone, cuts his own hair, mends his own clothes, and is, quote, inhabiting a life that he is perfectly aware could have been a 19th century life, end quote. It's been ages since he saw a movie or went to a doctor. But Bianchi also has a soft side. He recites famous poems to his farm animals and also writes his own poetry. One morning, he sees a unicorn in his vineyard that turns out to be pregnant. He understands the unicorn to be, quote, the one miracle of my life, end quote a reminder of his lost freedoms, and so he calls her La Signora. The unicorn never speaks, but has eyes huge with understanding that reach to the furthest recesses of his heart. He began to write poetry much more freely, and took a shine to Giovanna, the sister of his mailman, who was only half his age. Then the troubles started. First, two reporters, then a film crew, then an endless stream of cars, cameras, helicopters, and animal rights protesters, complete with lawyers. Worst of all, there came a so-called monster who was part of the dreaded Calabrian Mafia. Only in the last few pages do we learn the fate of Claudio, Giovanna, and La Signora. One thing is for sure, in the presence of the magical powers of the unicorn, Bianchi did not seem to care about being afraid. Peter S. Beagle, A Fifty-Year Career, it's a new novel in Calabria. For movies this week, we go to Uganda. The title of the movie, Imba, means sing, from the year 2015. 
In the wake of Uganda's civil war, in 1984, Ray Barnett founded a nonprofit organization called the African Children's Choir to help war orphans. You can Google AfricanChildrensChoir.com. The choir draws children from seven African countries, ages 7 to 12, based upon competitive auditions to tour around the world. This documentary film follows choir number 39 as they tour for 18 months, switching back and forth to their homes in Kampala. There are 20 kids in the choir, but the film tells their story mainly through the experiences of three kids. Moses, a drummer and a born leader, wants to be a pilot. Angel loves to swim and play with friends. She wants to be president. Then there is Nina. The Grammy-nominated African Children's Choir tours have raised funds for over 50,000 kids to continue their educations back home. This movie exudes courage, resilience, and joy, and would be perfect for a family film night. I watched it on Netflix streaming. Once again, from the country of Uganda, Imba means sing from the year 2015. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Raymond Carver. Raymond Carver lived from 1938 to 1988. The title of the poem is Gravy. The poem, in fact, is inscribed on Raymond Carver's tombstone. No other word will do, for that's what it was, gravy. Gravy, these past ten years, alive, sober, working, loving and being loved by a good woman. Eleven years ago, he was told he had six months to live at the rate he was going, and he was going nowhere but down. So he changed his ways somehow. He quit drinking. And the rest? After that, it was all gravy. Every minute of it. Up to and including when he was told about, well, some things that were breaking down and building up inside his head. Don't weep for me, he said to his friends. I'm a lucky man. I've had ten years longer than I or anyone expected pure gravy, and don't forget it. The poem is called Gravy by Raymond Carver. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, November the 12th, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.